Welcome to the Verity Podcast for Tuesday, October 17th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. Iran says it won't be a, quote, bystander if a political solution isn't found in Gaza. Vladimir Putin claims Ukraine is suffering massive losses in its counteroffensive. The U.S. claims North Korea has shipped arms to Russia. Daniel Naboa wins Ecuador's presidency. Christopher Luxon is elected New Zealand's prime minister. Poland's Law and Justice Party looks set to lose its majority. Australians vote no in a historic indigenous rights referendum. Joe Biden is far outspending Donald Trump in the quest for the White House. While Biden's polling still sags amid the Israel-Hamas war. Republican Jeff Landry is elected as Louisiana's new governor. And Pfizer plans to slash jobs and expenses as its COVID-related revenues plummet. Our top story, Iran says they will not be a bystander if political solutions aren't found in Gaza. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the New Arab, Al Jazeera, The Jerusalem Post, Press TV, and Forbes. On Sunday, Iran's foreign minister, Hossein Amir Abdullahian, suggested Tehran will not be a bystander to the Israel-Hamas conflict if a political solution is not found regarding Israel's operations in Gaza. Though he expressed optimism that political efforts will prevent the war from expanding, Amir Abdullahian stated that Iran could not remain a spectator to the situation if it were to continue. The foreign minister also met with Hamas leader Ishmael Hanye in Qatar on Saturday, commenting that if Israel did enter Gaza, the group would turn Gaza into a graveyard of the occupation soldiers. Calling it a responsibility of the UN Security Council to prevent the conflict from spiraling out of control, Amir Abdullahian said any escalation of the war would open new fronts of resistance in the Middle East. This comes after Iranian President Ibrahim Raisi accused Israel of committing a genocide of the Palestinians and called on both Islamic and Arab countries to form a united front against Tel Aviv. Though White House National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan has suggested that no new intelligence indicates Iran could escalate the Israel-Hamas conflict, the White House has warned Tehran not to intervene and worsen the regional war. Scott, thank you for presenting those facts. Our first spin is a pro-Iran narrative coming from Associated Press. Unlike the Western nations, Iran has been working on de-escalating the conflict. However, Israel's actions against Gaza must stop or the war could spill across borders. The responsibility and far-reaching consequences of Hezbollah and other actors joining the battle to protect the Palestinians directly fall on the U.S. and Israel. And the anti-Iran narrative comes from Bloomberg. Tehran, which supports both Hamas and Hezbollah, shouldn't attempt to join the Israel-Hamas war or exploit the situation in Gaza, as any further escalation in the Middle East would be catastrophic. An all-out diplomatic push must be made to keep Iran on the sidelines. And the nerds from the Metaculous Prediction community give us their nerd narrative. They say there's a 90% chance that there will be an Israel-Hezbollah war by 2030. Putin claims Ukraine is suffering massive losses and the counteroffensive. Here are the facts as agreed upon by TASS, Politico, Ukrainska Pravda, and Kyoto News. Russian President Vladimir Putin claimed Ukraine's counteroffensive, which is now in its fifth month since its launch in June, was suffering massive losses in an interview with Chinese state media published on Monday. Putin said, quote, they launched an active military operation, the so-called counteroffensive. It has continued since 4 June. 
No results achieved so far, only massive losses. The losses are simply huge at a ratio of 1 to 8. Reliable numbers of troops killed are hard to determine and Putin's claims cannot be independently verified. However, after months of little movement seen in the Russia-Ukraine front lines and the world's attention turning to Israel-Palestine, Russian forces quietly launched renewed offensive operations last week, storming Ukrainian positions in Advitvka and Marinka in the Donetsk region, while attempting to regain positions near Robotin on the Zaporizhia front. Russia has reportedly made gains near Advitvka. Over the weekend, Russia resumed a tactic employed last winter, attacks on Ukraine's energy infrastructure. In his nightly address on Sunday, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said there were no disruptions to water and electricity in the Kherson and Donetsk regions, but that service has largely been restored. On Monday, Russia launched renewed drone and missile attacks. Ukraine's Air Force said Russia deployed six missiles and 12 drones, two missiles and 11 drones of which were shot down. Missile strikes were recorded in the regions of Dnipropetrovsk, Poltava, and Kirovorod. A total of four civilians were reported injured. Meanwhile, Putin's comments to Chinese state media came as his foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, arrived in Beijing on Monday for a two-day conference on China's Belt and Road Initiative starting the following day. China's foreign ministry and the Russian news agency TASS said on Monday that Putin is also set to attend the conference in person. Thanks for that rundown, Eric. Politico brings us the pro-establishment narrative. With the attention of world leaders on the Israel-Hamas conflict, Putin has resumed his full frontal assault on Ukraine. Alongside storming Ukrainian positions, Putin is launching missiles, often targeting Ukraine's energy infrastructure. Counter that with a pro-Russian narrative coming from TASS. Ukraine's counteroffensive has suffered a huge number of losses and failed to make any meaningful gains. Russia is now conducting, quote, active defense, improving its positions along almost the entire line of contact. Our third narrative is a pro-Ukraine spin from Ukranska Pravda. Russia has launched upwards of 50 attacks in Donetsk and Zaporizhia in the last 24 hours, all of which were repelled by Ukrainian forces. These unsuccessful attacks resulted in a large number of Russian losses. The Metaculous Prediction community has a nerd narrative. It says there's a 1% chance that Ukraine will have de facto control of at least 90% of the Donetsk and Luhansk oblasts by January 1st, 2024. The U.S. claims North Korea shipped arms to Russia. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the BBC News, Reuters, the Associated Press, the Japan Times, and Voice of America. The White House on Friday accused North Korea of supplying up to 1,000 containers of equipment and munitions in recent weeks to Russia for its current war in Ukraine. Claiming that the containers were shipped between September 7th and October 1st, the White House released images appearing to show nearly 300 containers it alleged were being assembled in Najin for transport to a supply depot near Russia's southwestern border. In return for support, the White House alleged North Korea is seeking military assistance from Russia including fighter aircraft and surface-to-air missiles, revealing that the U.S. is closely monitoring whether Moscow will deliver weapons. National Security Council spokesman John Kirby warned that any technology transfers from Russia to the DPRK undermines regional stability and the global non-proliferation regime. The accusations come a month after North Korea's Kim Jong-un traveled to Russia's far east to meet Russia's Vladimir Putin and visit key military sites. This comes as North Korea, which has denied previous allegations that it had supplied Russia with weapons, criticized the U.S. for sending an aircraft carrier to South Korea earlier this week. Scott, thanks for those facts. We begin our round of spins with an anti-Russian narrative coming from BBC News. 
Any Russian attempt to buy munitions from North Korea violates UN resolutions that ban all arms trade with the isolated country. The U.S. must monitor the deliveries as they could kill Ukrainian civilians, further Russia's illegitimate war, and play a divisive role in the conflict. The pro-Russian narrative comes from Global Times. It's hypocritical to criticize Russia or call its military partnership with North Korea illegal when the U.S. has been sending lethal weapons to Ukraine in a large-scale hybrid war it has unleashed against Moscow. Before warning others, Washington could use some introspection. And the nerds from Metaculus are at it again with another nerd narrative that says there's a 1% chance that North Korea will send 100 or more troops to Ukraine before 2024. You're an expert at playing the game Risk. What would you do? Oh, I always hole up in Australia. But if I, but I actually, uh, if someone else is is trying to fight me too hard for that, then I don't mind uh, South America, which only has two ways in. You know, build up there, slowly encroach on North America, and then you know go out. That's since you asked. That's, that's wow. The you just laid it all out there. <laughs> That's pretty, bra- that's pretty brazen now, of you, man. But see, now, is that my real strategy, or is that just am I throwing you right. off for when we inevitably pull Right, right. We'll that see. could be a decoy. I'm a shrewd operator, you know? <laughs> Daniel Noboa wins Ecuador's presidency. And here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, Bloomberg, Financial Times, Guardian, The Times, and New York Times. Daniel Noboa, the 35-year-old banana industry heir and son of Alvaro Noboa, who ran unsuccessfully for the president five times, will become Ecuador's youngest president ever after winning the runoff presidential election on Sunday. With more than 94% of votes counted, electoral officials stated that the businessman and political neophyte beat his left-wing opponent, Luisa Gonzalez, considered a pupil of former President Rafael Correa, roughly 52% to 48%. Noboa campaigned on a tough-on-crime pro-business platform to deal with worsening security and economic crises, vowing to house criminals on prison ships and to attract foreign investment and youth employment via tax benefits. Ecuador's president-elect is set to be sworn into office on November 25th, but will govern just until May 2025, completing the tenure of outgoing President Guillermo Lasso, who dissolved the country's parliament in May during an impeachment trial and called for snap elections. The one-time congressman is the latest of a string of young leaders to be elected heads of state in Latin America in their 30s, following the steps of El Salvador's Nayib Bukele and Chile's Gabriel Boric. His victory is also aligned with the rising demand for outsiders to succeed in Argentina's upcoming elections, and also bucks the recent trend of leftist electoral triumphs across the region, such as in Bolivia, Brazil, Colombia, and Chile. Thank you, Eric. We have a right narrative spin from the Washington Post. Democracy was on the ballot in the Ecuadorian runoff election as the Latin American nation desperately needs to tackle organized crime. As Ecuador refrained from electing the candidate picked by Rafael Correa, a corrupt politician and authoritarian who has been criminally convicted, Washington must now ramp up cooperation with Quito and the Naboa administration. Counter that with a left narrative coming from Plenglish. It's unlikely that Noboa will be able to find a consensus to push through legislation even though Gonzalez has offered an olive branch to help him overcome the divided legislature when it comes to benefiting Ecuadorian citizens. The political novice clearly represents the interests of neoliberalism and the business sector, despite his claims to be centrist, which is ultimately not healthy for Ecuador's society or politics. 
and the nerd narrative from Metaculus, there's a 69% chance that the next president of Ecuador remain in office through the end of their term. Eric, in your mind's eye, what's the ideal age for a national leader? Oh, it's got to be upper 50s, lower 60s. Yeah, I think like 59 is perfect because then you'd kind of age into the early mid 60s. Yeah, I think that that would be my ideal. Christopher Luxon wins the New Zealand election. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Sky News, BBC News, The Conversation, Reuters, The Wire, and Al Jazeera. Christopher Luxon will form the next government in New Zealand after his center-right National Party won a decisive election on Saturday. With more than two-thirds of the vote counted, the National Party sat at nearly 40% in New Zealand's polls, while incumbent Prime Minister Chris Hipkins' Labour Party placed second with 25%. The prime minister-elect is expected to form a coalition with the Libertarian ACT Party and populist New Zealand First. Luxon's National Party and the ACT have secured 61 seats enough to form a majority government in the 121-seat parliament, while New Zealand First has clinched eight seats. Hipkins conceded defeat and told supporters, I want you to be proud of what we achieved over the last six years. Meanwhile, Luxon said he would build the economy, bring down the cost of living, and restore law and order. Scott, thanks for laying out the facts. The first spin is a right narrative coming from the Post. New Zealand has voted for change. While the result could be a shock for Labour, which secured a landslide victory in 2020, New Zealanders, battling the hangover of the pandemic and a struggling economy, have elected an accomplished former businessman to steer the country out of a cost-of-living crisis. And the left narrative spin comes from the New York Times. Though he has promised tax cuts for middle-income earners and a crackdown on crime, A lot of distrust remains as Luxon has been accused of tacitly condoning racism by not calling it out. Moreover, his cheerful disposition will be tested as he manages a coalition with two party leaders who are poles apart politically. According to recent polls, Poland's Law and Justice Party is set to lose majority. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, BBC News, DW, Associated Press and Guardian. Exit polls in a contentious and important Polish election indicated that the ruling Law and Justice Party is on the verge of losing control, with the opposition having the best chance of forming the country's next government. Ipsos' exit poll indicates that although the right-wing populist Law and Justice Party is expected to win the most seats in Poland's general election, it is unlikely to win a third term in power. After the polls closed, both the Law and Justice Party leader Jarosław Kaczynski and the Civic Coalition's Donald Tusk claimed victory. Quote, I've never been so happy about second place, said Tusk. Quote, Poland has won. Democracy has won, Kaczynski told supporters. However, days of negotiations may lie ahead until it becomes clear which party or coalition will form Poland's next government. In order to form a government, 231 seats in the same, the lower house of the parliament, are needed. The exit poll suggests that the three opposition parties have won 248 seats in the 460-seat lower house. Donald Tusk's party, the Civic Coalition, has won 31.6% of votes and is likely to form the next government. Academic analysts have suggested that Poland's president could, in theory, give the Law and Justice Party a first opportunity to form a government and delay moves by the opposition. The final tallies, expected Tuesday, could also potentially shift the equation. Thanks again for the facts, Eric. We have a left narrative spin from the LA Times. These election results are good news for Poland. This could signal the end of eight years of bad politics which have frequently caused Poland and the EU to clash. A new administration could have a significant impact on Poland's future and the balance of power in the EU and the course of the Ukrainian conflict. This is cause for celebration. Counter that with a right narrative coming from South China Morning Post. 
The ruling Nationalist Conservative Party won more votes than any single party and said it wanted to build a government led by Prime Minister Matus Morawiecki. It makes more sense that the largest party would also have the first opportunity to try to create a new government. We will know more on Tuesday when the State Electoral Commission presents its final results. It's still possible that the Law and Justice Party will yield great sway over Poland's politics. And Metaculus strikes again with this nerd narrative predicting there's a 20% chance that Poland will legalize gay marriage by the year 2030. Australians vote no in a historic indigenous rights referendum. Here are the facts as agreed upon by SBS, Al Jazeera, The Guardian, ABC of Australia, Reuters, and BBC News. On Sunday, Australia overwhelmingly rejected a proposal to amend the Constitution to recognize First Nations people and create a new advisory body to the federal parliament and government. This comes as Australians voted in the country's first referendum in nearly a quarter of a century dubbed The Voice, with a national majority as well as majorities in four of six states being required for the proposal to be successful. With roughly 80% of the ballots counted nationwide, the no vote has secured 60.7% of the national vote and majorities in all six states, plus the Northern Territory. The Australian Capital Territory was the only jurisdiction to record a yes vote. Following a defeat of the yes campaign, some indigenous leaders announced a week of silence, while Prime Minister Anthony Albanese stated that Australia must now find a different way to the same reconciled destination. Meanwhile, opposition leader Peter Dutton called on the country to unite after the Prime Minister's divisive referendum, demanding the government to shift its focus on the cost-of-living crisis in Australia and suggesting an audit of spending on Aboriginal programs. The Indigenous citizens of Australia, who have inhabited the continent for nearly 65,000 years, make up about 3.8% of the country's population of 26 million people. Scott, thanks for laying out those facts. We start with a left narrative coming from Guardian. Australia's First Nations people have endured generations of discrimination, exclusion, and outright theft. The referendum was a way to try and unite the country, but it failed due to a misinformation campaign that steered the debate away from the core issues. The result damages Australia's image in the world regarding how it treats Indigenous people. And the right narrative spin comes from American Spectator. A yes vote for the Indigenous Voice referendum a distraction from achieving practical and positive outcomes, would have let politicians widely seen as untrustworthy to create the set of rules governing the body while dividing Australians along racial lines without actually reducing indigenous disadvantage and marginalization. Once again, the nerds from Metaculus have a narrative saying that there's a 50% chance that one or more Australian governments will stop celebrating Australia Day on the 26th of January by November of 2027. President Biden raises $71 million in the third quarter, outpacing Trump and the GOP. Here are the facts as agreed upon by USA Today, CNN, ABC News, Reuters, and Fox News. President Joe Biden's 2024 re-election campaign has revealed it raised more than $71 million during the third quarter of 2023, bringing its total war chest to $91 million. Biden's $91 million is more than any other Democrat has ever raised at this point in a campaign. And it's more than double the cash on hand for former President Donald Trump, who polling shows as the overwhelming favorite for the Republican nomination. Campaign co-chair Jeffrey Katzenberg said Biden's haul, which the Democratic National Committee helped bring in, quote, exceeded the high bar goals set by the campaign. Biden's campaign said 97% of its donations came from small donors who gave less than $200, with the average donation totaling $40 per person. 
The large fundraising haul comes even as polls show Biden is facing doubts from the electorate about his age and also dealing with decreased enthusiasm among Democrats on a variety of issues. Trump announced earlier this month that he raised $46 million in the July-September quarter and has $38 million cash in hand. Thanks for the update, Eric. We have a Democratic narrative from Huffington Post. Based on the president's polling, few expected him to do so well in the fundraising game. Well, here he is, putting up big numbers, and not just in the total amount raised. Biden has seen an increase in new donors and also ones who have pledged to donate on a monthly basis. Whatever the polls say, the president has a historic amount of cash on hand to make a robust push for his 2024 re-election. We follow that with the Republican narrative coming from Daily Caller. Biden might be doing well in terms of fundraising, but he has the advantage that he's the lone candidate on the Democratic side. Trump's totals are impressive considering how much competition there is for Republican donations. More impressive, however, is the 40-point lead Trump has on his rivals and the momentum that's building toward ending the failed Biden administration and restoring Trump's winning strategies to the White House. And the nerd narrative from Metaculus, there's a 4% chance that Jeff Bezos will hold major political office in the United States before February of 2033. Biden's still in the news as his approval numbers, according to polls, are still low amid the Middle East war. Here are the facts as agreed upon by ABC News, PBS NewsHour, The Hill, Reuters, and Al Jazeera. An ABC News Ipsos poll has found that 54% of those polled disapprove of U.S. President Joe Biden's handling of the Israel-Hamas war, as well as other issues. Biden's numbers have slipped both for crime and climate change since the last ABC News Ipsos poll in January. In addition, a new NPR-PBS NewsHour Marist poll conducted on October 11th found that approximately 65% of the U.S. population believes that the country should publicly support Israel in its war against Hamas. 44% of those polled how Biden has managed the conflict so far, including 77% of Democrats, those polled are also twice as likely to strongly disapprove than to strongly approve of Biden's overall performance. Lee M. Meniringoff, the director of the Marist College Institute for Public Opinion, stated that the results showed Israel was, quote, clearly winning within the U.S. court of public opinion. In addition, another Reuters-Ipsos poll of about 1,000 U.S. adults found that 94% of Democrats and 71% of Republicans concurred with the phrase, American diplomats should actively be working on a plan to allow civilians fleeing fighting in Gaza to move to a safe country. This poll also suggested stronger support for Israel than in the past. In the past several years, the Democratic Party has experienced internal friction between pro-Israel moderates and some progressives more critical of Israel. Thanks, Eric. The New York Post brings us the Republican narrative spin on this political story. As the conflict simmers in the Middle East, a whopping 78% of Americans think the country is moving in the wrong direction. Biden's polling is extremely weak as the 2024 election begins to ramp up. The GOP has the momentum to take back the White House and help restore global stability. We counter that with a Democratic narrative coming from Guardian. President Biden has been talking an extraordinary tightrope, expressing full support for Israel, advocating for humanitarian solutions in Gaza, and forging a long-term regional solution while distancing himself from the undemocratic aspects of the Netanyahu regime. This is an extraordinarily complex conflict, and only time will tell if Biden's deft and wise navigations of these waters can translate to votes as 2024 approaches. And the nerd narrative from Metaculus, there's a 56% chance that Joe Biden will be re-elected president of the United States in 2024. 
Republican Jeff Landry is elected Louisiana's governor. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Fox News, ABC News, USA Today, The New York Post, The Wall Street Journal, and Politico. Louisiana's Republican Attorney General Jeff Landry was elected the state's next governor on Saturday in a primary that pitted all 14 contenders against each other regardless of party. Landry was endorsed by former President Donald Trump. Landry secured 52% of the vote to win outright and avoid a runoff on November 18th. His closest rival, Democratic candidate and former Louisiana Transportation Secretary Sean Wilson, conceded the defeat from his election night event in New Orleans after getting little more than a quarter of the vote. This is the first time that there will be no gubernatorial runoff in Louisiana since Republican Bobby Jindal was re-elected in 2011, while races for Attorney General, Secretary of State, and Treasurer have advanced to the November runoff, Lieutenant Governor Billy Nungesser was re-elected on Saturday's ballot. With this victory, the GOP reclaims the state's top position after eight years. Landry, who championed conservative policy positions during his tenure as Attorney General and ran a tough-on-crime platform, will replace term-limited Governor John Bell Edwards, the only Democratic governor in the Deep South. Though Louisiana is a red state, with Trump winning it by almost 19 points in 2020, Landry will become only the fourth Republican governor since the end of Reconstruction. The race was the first major contest in the state ahead of the 2024 elections. Democrats and Republicans will face more races this year, including a gubernatorial election in Kentucky and state legislative elections in Virginia. Those were the facts, and the first spin is a Democratic narrative coming from New York Times. Without a Democratic governor to veto several controversial bills approved by the Republican-controlled state legislature, Louisiana will hurtle down a far-right path that will target the rights of women, black people, and the LGBTQ community. As the state is facing a declining population, these policies may be disastrous for the state's future. And the Republican narrative from PJ Media, while Louisiana has long been a red state, this outright victory is a positive sign for the GOP ahead of the 2024 elections. In our final story, Pfizer drops their revenue prediction and plans job cuts. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Bloomberg, Wall Street Journal, and ABC News. Pharmaceutical company Pfizer has announced it will cut its full-year revenue forecast by 13% and trim $3.5 billion worth of jobs and expenses in the face of slower sales on its COVID vaccine and treatment. With demand for Comirnaty, a COVID vaccine, and the antiviral treatment of Paxlovid down, the New York City-headquartered Pfizer estimates its 2023 revenue will fall to $61 billion, down from the $67 billion to $70 billion it previously predicted. The U.S. government in the fourth quarter is expected to return approximately 7.9 million courses of Paxlovid due to waning demand in exchange for credit on future courses. Pfizer said it will then be able to start supplying Paxlovid on the commercial market in January 2024. Shares in Pfizer fell more than 1% before the start of trading Monday, while vaccine Comderna saw its shares slip almost 5%. In 2021 and 2022, Pfizer set revenue records by making more than $100 million on the strength of developing its vaccine and treatment. Revenue from Comirnaty and Paxlovid passed $56 billion last year. Thanks, Eric, for that final story. Narrative A comes from CNBC. A dip in demand for COVID jabs and treatments was predictable, but unfortunately several factors contributed to Pfizer's outlook worsening. Between people's expected COVID fatigue and rampant misinformation about vaccines that continues to proliferate, it's difficult to convince doubters to keep up with their protection. 
Supply and insurance snafus have also made it harder for the public to access Pfizer products and have made for a bumpy road for the big pharma titan. Narrative B comes from MarketWatch. This is just an expected market correction after Pfizer set revenue records, and the pharmaceutical giant will be right back on track as it will be able to sell Paxlovid commercially starting late this year or earlier in 2024. The return of government stock will give Pfizer demand certainty, while people on Medicare and Medicaid, as well as those without insurance, will be able to obtain Paxlovid on the government's dime. Pfizer has a bright future. And finally, a nerd narrative from Metaculus. They predict there's a 50% chance that COVID-19 will be eradicated by March of 2088. Thanks for listening to the Verity Podcast for Tuesday, October 17th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extract both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. Find out more at Verity.news and download the Verity app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Steiner inviting you to join us next time on the Verity Podcast. 